this time of year. You love Christmas lights, don't you? Don't you like Christmas lights? Bright and flashy and just lighting up the place. You like those flashing lights and you drive through the neighborhood. The only place you don't like the flashing lights as you're driving through the neighborhood is when they're right behind you in your rear view mirror. Right? All of a sudden, for some reason, it's still the same kinds of lights, blues and reds, but all of a sudden it's different now. We don't like lights there. Imagine, there you are, driving along, and all of a sudden, as you've been looking this way and that way at flashing lights, you look in the mirror, and there are flashing lights. How do you feel? You feel, yay, yes, finally, I was hoping they would show up. No? Oh, that's interesting. That tells me something. Because you might say, oh, no. You could, your heart could leap with joy or it might fall into your stomach. You might breathe a grateful yes or a regretful, oh, no. It depends upon context. It depends a lot on you. For instance, Maybe you're alone, driving alone, it's late at night, it's dark, you're in an unfamiliar part of town, and it seems how somewhere looking for the place you were going to, you wound up in the warehouse district, and you don't know where you are, you don't know what's going on, and that little light on your dash that looks like a tire and an exclamation point lights up, and the car pulls this way, and you've got a flat, and as you pull over, you see some guys. It's nice. There's some people right here who could help you. You see a couple of guys, and they're walking down the street, and you don't know exactly what they intend, and then all of a sudden, you get those wonderful Christmas lights in your rearview mirror, and your heart soars, and you say, yes, help has come, or maybe you've been driving like a maniac, cutting in and out of traffic. You woke up late, and you cannot be late to work again, and so you've been, you crossed your fingers, and off you go, in and out, and, and, and speeding up, and you're just hoping. But then you see it in your rearview mirror, and you know not only are you going to be late, but it's going to cost you. Oh, same police, same flashing lights, Completely different response. The only difference in the stories was you and your context and what you were about and what you needed. The, the, the flashing lights are something about, there's something there. Next time you see those flashing lights, think of this. Jesus is coming. That's what Advent is all about. Advent is about the king is coming. And the king is coming for two purposes. The king is coming both to rescue and to judge. He's coming both to rescue and to judge. And the, the, the difference with the same king at the same coming depends upon us. Am I ready for his coming? 
Am I forgiven by God, first of all? What is it to be ready for his coming? First of all, at the most basic level, am I forgiven by God? Am I ready, before, ready to stand before God, my maker, my king, my judge? Am I ready to meet the one to whom I'm accountable? And though I am a rebel, though I am imperfect, I have sinned, I am guilty. Am I ready to stand before God, the judge of all the earth? And the basis of that is, has my guilt been forgiven? Has my sin been removed? Not by something that I have done. Oftentimes we have this idea that, I was just talking with somebody the other day that, that had this sense that, that I've done bad things, but if I do more good things, if I try a little harder, if I focus myself, you know, bad things before, but good things now, you know, God will remember more of the current things than the past, right? And, and, and God will, that's, that's probably the message of Freedom House, right? You guys did some bad things, but now let's spend a year just doing some good things. And if we could just do some good things in this year, then maybe God would look more favorably upon us. That is not it at all. That is, I have done bad things. I have done miserable things. I am a wretch before God. I am a rebel actively pursuing my way instead of God's way. And then God has intervened, and God sent his Savior. God sent his Son. And his Son took my sin, my guilt, my rebellion upon himself. And he said, if you will just accept what my son has done for you, if you will trust your acceptance before me is based upon what Jesus has done for you, you will be saved. You are forgiven. Forgiven in Christ. That's what Freedom House is about. That's where freedom comes from. And then you are free to live. Then you are free to walk with him. Then you are free to serve. Not ashamed of his presence. Not afraid of his presence. But able to draw near and to come close. Because you know you are forgiven. You've no reason to hide. Am I forgiven? Am I ready for his coming? First of all, am I forgiven, in, forgiven by God in Jesus? Secondly, then, if I'm forgiven too often as Christians and in churches, we sort of leave it at that. We stop there. But having been forgiven, am I drawing close? Am I walking with him? Am I now living in the purposes that God created me for and has redeemed me, bought me back, restored me for? Am I, am I walking with him, living, being restored, being refined more and more to reflect his likeness, to live out his purpose? Have I been forgiven, first of all? And then from there, am I being restored into God's purpose? Is he cleansing me, purifying me, refining me? That's the language that's used in this Advent passage just before us. This is the last, one of the last Advent passages in the Old Testament. In fact, from Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and if you're using the church Bible in front of us, you'll find us in about page 802. If you went just a page or two over from there, you would be in the New Testament. A couple of pages further on, and you are right in the birth of Jesus. It's a few hundred years, but only a couple of pages. And so Malachi is speaking into a time when there has been much failure among God's, God's people. And yet there is a hunger, there is a longing for what God would do. How God would restore this, how God would restore us. How God would return things to how they're supposed to be. How they once were. There's a hungering for that. And they remember, even in their own nation, a simplicity of worshiping God in the early days when God first brought them out of Egypt, when they ex first experienced his salvation. 
And perhaps you can imagine that yourself today as well. I remember a time when it felt like I was closer to him than I have been lately. I, felt, I remember a time when I experienced his cleansing. I experienced his ongoing purifying. God molding me and shaping me into his image and into his likeness. And that's what Malachi is, is reminding Israel of. Creating this hungering, stirring this hungering for the Lord's coming, reminding them that he is coming and what that coming is going to include. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Malachi chapter 1. Or sorry, chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God says he is coming. And the Lord whom you seek... Oh, we just wish the Lord would come. Oh, he will. Suddenly, unexpectedly, he's here. He will come to his temple. And Jesus did that. He didn't like what he found there. Remember the whole table turning upside down thing? He will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Are you ready for his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Are you ready for him to appear? Why? Because he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, the priesthood. He will refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old, as in former times. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in their wages, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now that could be a scary statement. I'm still the same, he says. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. The reason they are not consumed, the reason we are not consumed is because God does not change. He is faithful. Well, let's take this. As we think about, am I ready for his coming? How to be ready for his coming? What do I need to be ready for his coming? Let's first of all, let's consider these, 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 uh, this passage verse by verse. Behold, I send my messenger. Now that messenger that he sends over in chapter 4 of Malachi, he's going to identify that he's going to send you Elijah. So this is the prophet Elijah that he's going to send. Again, now Elijah's already come. A few hundred years earlier, Elijah, uh, Elijah had come. Several hundred years earlier. And yet Elijah's going to come. He's going to send Elijah. Isaiah also speaks of this prophet who would come as a forerunner to the Messiah. The one who would prepare a people to make them ready for the coming of the Lord. And that, that forerunner, that voice crying in the wilderness is clearly identified in the Gospels as John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus says, if, if, if they would have had it, Elijah has come. In John the Baptist. So Jesus identifies that forerunner as the Elijah promised here. And the Lord has come. In the same way, Jesus stretches it a little further. He says, you know, John the Baptist 
is great. In fact, of all the sons of men, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Of all the prophets who would come, those that we would call major prophets, of all who have arisen so far, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And yet, Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Have you ever thought about that? If John the Baptist's essential role was as a forerunner of Jesus, a forerunner of the Messiah's coming, whose job it was to prepare people to get them ready for his coming, and there's none greater than him, and yet all those in the kingdom of heaven, all those who are part of Christ's kingdom through faith in Jesus are greater. They're actually indwelt by the spirit of the living God. That's something that John didn't have. And yet our role must be something similar to John's. We must have the same kind of purpose that we are as forerunners to the advent. Forerunners to the coming. Getting people ready for his coming. We have a privilege, like John the Baptist's privilege. Charles Ryrie says this about this passage. This greatness of John the Baptist in the old dispensation of the law before the cross, it fades in comparison to the high position every believer has had in Jesus since Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit. Look what God has done for us. Look how he has lifted us. Look how God has made us his messengers, sent before his coming to prepare people to be ready Because the Lord is coming. The Lord will come suddenly into his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Jesus comes to inaugurate a new covenant. A covenant which the prophets had given Israel to hope in. A new covenant where God would cause his people to walk in his ways. God in this new covenant would purify himself a people for his own possession. We delight in Jesus. But are we ready for his coming? Can we endure in his presence? On what basis are we ready? Okay, I have been forgiven. And yet, am I ready for when he comes? Just yesterday, a fun thing happened in our house. There we were, sitting in the home in the afternoon. We knew, we knew some, some others were coming over in a while. And uh, so we, we knew that was coming, but we weren't quite ready yet. In fact, Julie was working on a Christmas present That was for one of these who was coming to visit the house. And all of a sudden, in the midst of her working on the Christmas present, there is a knock on the door. Actually, there wasn't a knock on the door. They had a key. And they just turned the key and came right in. And suddenly, they're here. And Julie is scampering, not quite ready for their arrival. Right? You kind of get the picture. What is it to be not quite ready, even as a Christian, for believers, uh, as, as believers, to be not quite ready? Would we still feel a little, a little shame, a little embarrassment, a little regret, or will we feel relief at his coming? Will we feel hope? Will we feel joy and completion? Do we, do we have this? I remember when I was younger, I wanted Jesus to come, but not just yet. Can you identify with that? Oh, Lord Jesus, come in a while. That is not the cry of the New Testament. The New Testament cries out in the midst of troubles. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, soon, suddenly, don't wait. We, have, we got other stuff going on, don't we? 
Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Yeah, yeah. But not just yet. I got some stuff. I want to I finish putting some of this together. Well, maybe he's waiting because he wants to finish, in a sense, putting you together. He still has some refining to do. He still has some shaping to do. You see, to be ready for his coming, I, I need his forgiveness. We've talked about that. I need to be cleansed of my guilt, but I also need some refining. Some of you who know me well would say, yeah, Bob. Yeah, it's good that you brought that up because we have some things to talk about. Because, Bob, you, you, <laughs> you need some refining. Got some work to do still here, okay? That's okay because we could have the same, we could have the same conversation. We could do that now if you like. No, 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 we, won't, we wouldn't. We'd have to start with me. We don't want to do that now. But, but in, we, I need some refining, right? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now in, my, in, the, in our men's study on Monday mornings, we had this conversation. What is fuller's soap? You know, it used to be some guy would come to the door and he was selling brushes and maybe... You know, the Fuller Brush Company, maybe he would sell brushes and maybe he would also sell soap. I think most of us might be too, old, too young to remember Fuller's Brush Company going door to door. I don't even know if they're online. But that's not the kind of soap. What is this Fuller's soap? What is fulling? Fulling is an old English term for a particular kind of washing. It's a bleaching washing. And what they would do, they would, they would, they would create this fuller's soap out of a, the ashes of a particular plant. They'd dry the plant. The closest plant we have to it, if you're curious, you want to make your own fuller's soap at home. Down in Southern California, they have this thing called ice plant. Well, dry out your ice plant and then, then burn it in the fire. Take the ashes, grind those up, and you can mix those and you will have fuller's soap. It's kind of a natural lie. So it's a, it's a very, very strong soap, a very strong, an ammonia kind of washing. Now what it was used for in particular was the washing of wool. You've heard it said, this phrase, as white as wool. And you can imagine these little lambs and they are bright, sparkly white, right? No, they're not. They're kind of dingy, yellowish sort of a thing. And then they live in the field, they roll in the dirt, and they get dingier as they go. So wool is not naturally bright and white and clean. Not only that, you may not have known this, but sheep smell. They have all of this sheep's oil in them. You know, all the sheeps have this oil that comes out of their skin and into the wool. And think of wet dog. Wouldn't it be nice to have a new wool blazer and it has that lovely fresh wool aroma of wet dog. No, we got to clean that out of there. And what cleans that out of there is this Fuller's soap. It's a very strong, wear gloves on your hands or your hands will be red and painful because it's a very strong soap, but it cleans. And he comes like a refiner's fire, driving out the impurities. And like Fuller's soap, cleansing. Jeremiah talks of that soap. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. You cannot clean yourself. Now how much dove you used this morning, I'm sure, sure, sure you're lovely, but not clean enough before God from our guilt. Isaiah says, come now. 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool, brightly cleaned. God is purifying for himself a people of his own possession. I mentioned the silver. The problem with refining silver, the heating it up is not so difficult. You've got to stand back a little bit because it spits and sputters, right? It spits and sputters because the oxygen is coming out of it. Lots of oxygen emerges out of that, out of that raw ore silver. And as it does, it turns from a dull gray into a bright, shiny, beautiful silver. But if you just then let it cool, as it cools, it's going to reabsorb the oxygen from the atmosphere that surrounds it. And then it will be dull in gray and not reflective again. So when you heat it up and, and you spit and sputter the oxygen out of it, then you add something else into it, the carbon. You add that in so that it does not reabsorb the atmosphere that surrounds it. There's something there for us to learn. Remember the point. If you do that properly, it doesn't reabsorb the atmosphere. Instead, it's purified. And you know that it's fully purified when you look into the pot and the refiner sees his own reflection reflected back in the silver. There's clearly an analogy there for us concerning God's work in us. That God is refining us. Our Lord is refining. He comes as a refiner's fire. And, and while he turns up the heat, what do we do? We spit and we sputter, right? We hiss. And yet, along the way, that stuff comes out of us and gets worked out of us. And, and, and God has added in his spirit into us that we not reabsorb the spirit of the age around us. No, he says, I put my spirit into your heart so that you would walk in my ways. There's the messenger of the new covenant. And, and he creates, he purifies his own likeness within us. We need to welcome God's purifying work. Often we resist it. Often we resist any what seems like difficulty, trouble, opposition. God isn't supposed to be like this. Lord, you promised that if I, if I believed in you that you'd make everything wonderful, rainbows and ponies. And it isn't. Maybe God will use those things to refine us because he wants us to have the privilege of being shaped and to, and to be purified, refined, that we would well reflect his likeness. Do you have somebody that you would invite into a discipling confrontation? Do you have somebody around you that you would invite to say, where do you need to step next how do you need, how could you walk a little more closely with the Lord? Do you have somebody who's willing to tell you, you've got broccoli stuck in your teeth? Your fly is down. You've got bats in the cave. You've got, you've got coffee breath. Dude, you forgot your deodorant. I saw that. Quick check. <laughs> do you have somebody that would tell you that difficult, awkward thing about you? Do you want them to? Or would we rather keep being who we are and smelling like we smell? Right? We need faithful friends. Do you have somebody who you would say, would you pray? Would you pray for me and with me? Would you pray about where I need to grow? What next step in following God's will should I take? 
Because he'll sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify us. That, that the offering that we would bring would be pleasing to the Lord. That God would so do his work in us. He would make us a holy priesthood, as Peter says. That we would be offering spiritual sacrifices of being merciful and loving to our neighbor, Mark 12. Spiritual sacrifices of praise and worship, Hebrews 13. A spiritual sacrifice of giving that advances the gospel to others. Philippians chapter 4, all kinds of spiritual service of worship, worship, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, Romans 12. That we are God's unique people as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, saved by the blood of Christ, his death for us. We are his unique people and priesthood to live our lives as spiritual offerings to him. Now, there will be an offering here in a short time. As soon as the preacher quits, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to receive an offering But that's just one aspect of our offering of worship to the Lord that is out of our whole lives before him. Think of yourselves, a Christmas song, Silver Bells. Silver Bells, it's Christmas time in the city. Silver Bells, think of yourselves as Silver Bells. Being shaped, being refined as silver bells that are being refined that on the surface of that silver. And as, as it goes, that silver, you know, the Lord just seems to keep working. He keeps he's just a little bit more, a little, a little, there's always a little that he wants to do. So delighted in this particular piece he is. This particular piece more than any other, which is you, by the way. He's, he's especially delighted in and he, he, he works on that one. He keeps the polishing going. So delighted is he. Think of yourself as a silver bell being refined that you would all the more reflect his glory and being shaped to sound in a perfect note the beautiful song of the gospel to someone else. That we are his silver being refined for his purposes. If I'm going to be ready for his coming, I need his refining. And I need God to judge Oh, there is much wrong in the world. One of the things I like to think about is that when Jesus comes, he comes to make all that's wrong right. And there is much wrong that needs to be righted. But when Jesus comes to make all that's wrong, all that is wrong right, that's coming in judgment. He has to judge the wrong. Peter actually warns us, let's, let's first, let judgment begin with the household of God. Let judgment begin with the household of faith. Let's start among ourselves. God, what would you judge in me? Lord, search me, O God, and, and know my mind. Try me and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. Judge it and lead me in your everlasting way. Things that he mentioned here, sorcerers. There's all kinds of alternative spiritualities around us today. People love spirituality. They have moved on from their perception of Christianity and Jesus, and they've moved into something else that is spiritually real. It is cool to be a Wiccan today. It is, it is cool to, to, to be involved in Reiki healing, which is a, an animistic, spiritist practice of manipulating a spiritual power that is all through animate, living, and inanimate objects, and you manipulate this power to create healing. There are massages and healing centers right here in Vancouver that practice this. There's, there's oh, something as simple as a Ouija board. A Ouija board, and people, people will play with this. It's like it's sold in the game section. 
And, and you can buy a Ouija board and, and you move, that thing moves around and it gives you answers, some spiritual being. There's some spiritual reality to this. Yes, there is. You have invited a demonic spirit to talk with you. You've invited a, a demonic spirit to enter and in, in, be involved and engage in your life. You have given a demonic spirit your ear, so to speak. And you can buy a Ouija board. I'm not telling you to. People would buy them at Walmart or Bed Bath & Beyond. Way beyond. <laughs> Adulterers. All kinds of covenant unfaithfulness. We live in an unfaithful age. That atmosphere that's around us that we will easily absorb in ways that we might not even realize. That's why we need somebody else's help. That's why we need somebody else to, to come alongside of us and walk with us. And, and, and we disciple and live together before the Lord. Because we won't even realize the, the, the spirit of the age that we might be absorbing. It's interesting, this current uproar over sexual harassment out of Hollywood. And yet, over the last decades, what has been coming out of Hollywood? And out of almost every corner of it, from, from movies to, to, to comedies to, to game shows to advertisements, everything about this media has all kinds of immoral suggestion and depictions and scenes and normalizing things that, in God's view, are not normal. That's been going on for years. And now, all of a sudden, there's an uproar over a particular kind of immorality that is as evil as the other. And yet, it's been the business for so long. That's so important. That, that faithfulness in the midst of immorality and unfaithfulness is so important because we represent God's faithfulness. That, that your marriage, the one that you're in right now, this marriage, this is where you can, you can display the covenant faithfulness of God to his people. As God intended it, calling Israel in the Old Testament the bride of the Lord. As in the New Testament, the church is the, is, is the bride of Christ. That when Paul speaks about marriage in Ephesians 5, he says, when I talk about marriage, I'm talking about this mystery between Christ and his church. And in this relationship, in this close and intimate relationship in marriage, I have, I have the opportunity to live in that unique and special covenant relationship that God has made with us. And I can reflect his glory there. Where I can, as a husband, it says, love your wives, give yourself for her the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So that he might what? Purify to himself a glorious bride. God is doing his work in us. Those who swear falsely. Why? Because God is a God of truth. Lies are of the devil, the father of lies. We are to speak the truth in love. Those who oppress the hired worker for his wages, taking advantage of paying what I can get by with instead of what's fair. Oppressing widow and fatherless. James says that pure religion before God is to come near and help widows and orphans. Why? Because God came near and helped us as helpless. And so we, the bottom line of all of this is those who there is no fear of God in their eyes. They do not fear God, and so they go their own way. The bottom line in all of this is who are we accountable to? Jesus comes to make all that's wrong with humanity right. 
what is wrong is represented there in those categories. They're all, familiar, they're all too familiar to us. One of the men in our group said, you know, we can't ignore that verse. We can't skip over, over verse 5 there because it, it describes the culture of our day. We live in a world, and so we live among people who when he comes, he must judge. Am I ready for his coming? Am I helping somebody else to be ready for his coming? But he comes, he purifies now, but he comes to judge. I need his purifying. And for creation to be what it's supposed to be, we also need his judgment. And so first we need his judgment even in our own lives, sorting out what should not be there, what doesn't belong now in the new creation that I am in Christ. God in Jesus forgives and he cleanses. He redeems and he restores. I've been forgiven so that I don't need to fear his coming. I, I, I'm being refined and purified so that I won't feel shame or loss or regret when he comes. That he has shaped me for that moment. It's a purifying hope. As John says in, in chapter 3 of 1 John, Beloved, we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. And John goes on to say, and everyone who has this hope in them purifies himself even as he is pure. Focusing on his coming. We remind ourselves of Advent because we need to remind ourselves Jesus is coming. That has its impact and effect on us. I need his purifying. I need God's judgment. I need God's faithfulness. Because he also comes as judge. I will rest. I will hide. I find my safety in God's faithfulness. Verse 6, For the Lord, I the Lord, do not change. Therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. If you worry, how could God really love you the way you continue sometimes as unfaithful to him? Do you ever worry that? Do you ever wonder that? Yes. Your best example of that is God and Israel. He has not cast them off. He is purifying. He is refining. He continues to draw this people who have so stubbornly gone their own way as one little microcosm of all of humanity, one group out of the whole that shows us what all of us are like, but God shows his own faithfulness with them so that you'll know his faithfulness to you. I do not change, he says. Paul put it this way to, in a letter to Timothy, encouraging Timothy. He said, even if we are unfaithful, God continues to be faithful because he cannot deny himself. He doesn't change. What he has promised to you, he will do. I can be ready for his coming. What does it take to be ready for his coming? Resting in that confidence that God doesn't change. There's one more slide I wanted to show you. What it is to be ready for his coming. Where that confidence comes from. That I'm, I'm refined and purified. Sin removed. Living in God's faithfulness, not my own. On that basis, I am. I can be. You can be ready for his coming. Now maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure that fits you. You're not sure that at that first step, have I trusted in God for my forgiveness rather than myself and my own efforts? 
Have I trusted what Jesus did for me or am I trying to balance the bad that I did with the good that I now do? Right here, right now, you could, in that way, be ready for his coming. Right here, right now, you could say, God, I believe you. I trust you concerning what you said about Jesus dying in my place for my sin, for my guilt. Because he died and carried that away and rose again in my place, I can have eternal life forever with you because what Jesus did for me. Lord, I will trust you for that. I'll believe you for it. And on that basis, I am ready for his coming to welcome us together into his presence. I want to close in prayer now. And if you have not, if you're not sure about that, this is an opportunity for you to just join me in praying. And if you do, if you are, if you know, yes, I have believed God. This is a time again to say for yourself, maybe you want to mouth the words out loud. God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died for me as my Savior. I trust Jesus to be forgiven and accepted before you. Let's pray that way. If you want to join in out loud, feel free. Lord, I believe you concerning Jesus as my Savior. Father, I believe you that Jesus died in my place, that I am forgiven, I am accepted by you in Jesus. And so, Lord, I want you to do your purifying work. Lord, I might spit and hiss and fuss and mutter, but, Lord, I want you to do whatever it takes in doing your purifying work in my life that there would be more of your reflection seen in me. That I would be like a silver bell, sweetly proclaiming your beautiful song of the gospel to others until your joy dawns, until Jesus comes. Lord, accept not only what we bring this morning, what we receive in this offering, but Lord, accept our own lives given to you as a spiritual sacrifice of worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen.